You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. So in Emmanuel, you had to be baptized in order to speak in tongues, correct? Yes, that was the, the order of things. If you did speak in tongues, then you were baptized. After. I think there's an instance in the Bible about that, right? Some folks spoke it. I'm so sure. if you speak in tongues, they're going to grab you and throw you in a baptism pool oh, yes. real quick. 100%. <laughs> this is Heaven Bent. I'm Tara Jean Stevens. Episode 3, The Tabernacle. I don't know if we've talked about it before then. So how old were you and when did you speak in tongues? I remember exactly. I was 14 at church camp because church camp is where they sent you to go get the Holy Ghost. And it was hours and hours in the altar. People crying and praying and pushing you around. And this pastor's wife of our um, church in Tracy City up on one of the mountains, she said to me in my ear, she said, I don't know her exact words, but it was something along the lines of like, Sharon, the Lord wants to give it to you. You just got to take it. But I believe, I believe you've got to give something up, don't you? There's still something there that you need to give up. And I remember like the first thought that came to my head because I hadn't, I had never even kissed a boy. Like I hadn't, you know, the only thing that came to my head was I wear pants. And it was the summer between my eighth grade year and freshman year. I thought, well, I'll, I'll give up wearing pants if I get the Holy Ghost. And, you know, the music's going and everybody's praying or whatever. And, you know, I just started like, I guess, just speaking and jumping up and down. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah. And they're smacking your mouth and your jaw. And yeah, I remember it. On this episode, the origin story of Emmanuel Church of Christ Youth Camp, affectionately known as the Tabernacle, where Sharon and countless other Emmanuel young people once learned how to speak in tongues, and where Sharon and her Emmanuel friends were gathered in 1987 when news broke about their associate bishop overseer, Brother Terry, originally dying in that mysterious church fire. Coming up, we'll not only learn about the history of the tabernacle, we'll also unpack the concerning things that would happen there and at Pentecostal church camps in general, especially in the 1980s and 90s when Sharon and I were both going, at a time when dark forces were truly at work throughout the Pentecostal church. The Tabernacle was a full facilities sort of camp, the land owned by Emmanuel Church of Christ. It's in Lebanon, just east of Nashville, and the property featured dormitories, a fully equipped kitchen and dining area, and a large sanctuary for services. This recording, another one from Sharon's family archives, is the last day of church camp in 1994. 
Sharon attended the tabernacle every summer, starting from when she was seven until she was 17. They started every day with breakfast, a pledge of allegiance to the flag, and then morning devotional. And in the morning devotional, it was like a morning church service, but it was all run by kids. We had captains. And so our captains were like our group captains. And so it'd be like brother so-and-so's group and sister so-and-so's group are doing the morning devotion today. Also notable, at camp, girls did not wear pants, ever. I mean, they might at home, but if they did, they didn't really talk about it. Also, even though this was summer camp, there was also no swimming. Emmanuel had strict rules regarding modesty. And on top of that, mixed bathing between men and women, girls and boys, was not allowed. But just like any other Pentecostal camp, it's not all Jesus all the time. The tabernacle had sports. And we would play against other, other groups, like our team captains. So we would have baseball and volleyball competitions, like tournaments or whatever, throughout the week. And of course, there were good old-fashioned camp crushes. If there was some camp crushing going on, it was like after church, when it was dark, people would go outside and kind of play. There was this little area in between the trees, so there was a bench, and people would call it the French bench. That's what they oh, called no. it because they would sit. <laughs> and French kiss? Yes! <laughs> the French bench. The French oh, bench. <laughs> and so, so then, of course, you know, that turns into, did you... Uh, did you hear so and so and so and so was on the French bench last night? Like it turned into hey, a whole. What about like, you, was... Sharon K. Edwards? Did you ever sit no. on the French bench? I never did. <laughs> and would you know? Would you believe that that was like something I wanted to do so badly? Like I wanted to be one of the cool kids who like had a camp crush, but I, I you know, and went to the French bench after church. But no, I had big fuzzy hair in classes and was not attractive and never had a boyfriend at camp. Oh well. And how about the actual history of the tabernacle? Having now looked into it myself, I was curious about how much Sharon knew about how it came to be. The history of our youth camp was probably, hmm, I don't, hmm, I don't know how it became a thing. It was probably just because the churches were moving and grooving and clicking along and noticed that there was a youth and they needed to do something for the youth. Sort of, yeah. Church records show that the idea for an Emmanuel church camp was first presented to Bishop Overseer, Sister Nina Mae Pierce, in the early 70s by Emmanuel's then youth leader, Sister Bertie Mae Banks. And I couldn't quite pinpoint how early on Emmanuel first adopted a youth leader within the assembly, but Historians do seem to agree that it started becoming a popular thing in American evangelical churches starting about the 40s, and it really grew from there, meaning it would have been well within the times for Sister Bertie Mae Banks to suggest this idea for a youth camp when she did. And sounds like the vision here was to not only have a place for Emmanuel's young people from various towns and states to fellowship, it was also about having somewhere permanent to hold Emmanuel's general assemblies, these annual gatherings that, at their peak, saw more than 6,000 people rock up. 
and fundraising for Emmanuel's camp property began in July of 72, when Nina held a fundraiser during something they called a Brush Arbor Revival. Okay, so my whole life I've heard of tent revivals and brush harbors. And my, my granny, my dad's mom, she would talk about like going to brush arbor meetings. And I just assumed it was like a tent revival. Brush Arbor revivals first became a thing during the famous camp meetings of the 1700s, when worshippers built makeshift shelters in lieu of an actual tent. Well, they built it. So it's kind of like... um, they would get branches and, and lumber, and they would build the outdoor structure to have the church in. So it was during this Brush Arbor revival in 72 when Nina and whoever else showed up all sat on plank benches on sawdust floors and together during this meeting raised the first $15 towards the cost of what would eventually become the tabernacle, using a hubcap as a makeshift offering plate. Oh, the hubcap apparently at a tent revival or something, they took up the first offering to have a place for church camp. And they took it in a hubcap because someone left the offering plates and that was the hubcap. And I remember it hanging in the cafeteria. You having fun? How was service last night? Good. This isn't Sharon, just a random tabernacle camper being interviewed in the cafeteria one summer. But it's cool to hear someone so young describe the experience from her point of view. Jumping, screaming. Jumping, screaming. Praising the Lord. Praising the Lord. Good to go. Everybody's crying, of course. I hope you have fun this week. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. Go finish up your breakfast, all right? I get the impression that, like it was at my Pentecostal camp, the vibe was, in general, pretty good. We were all having a good time, right? It was, um, it, was, it was a good time, but it's also complicated with the religious trauma. Because every night, the whole purpose of camp was to get you filled with the Holy Ghost. So every night after the sermon or whatever, there was this altar call that would last for hours and hours and and our hands would be raised, and we'd rock back and forth, and they'd rock with us, and they'd smack our chin and scream and holler just to get us to speak in tongues because, quote, you're not filled with the Holy Ghost without the evidence of speaking in tongues. And I remember being in high school when it finally hit me that, wait a second, we believe you have to have the Holy Ghost to be saved, and you don't have the Holy Ghost until you speak in tongues, so you don't get to go to heaven unless you speak in tongues? What happens to all these other people? Like, no one I know speaks in tongues. So it was, it was, it was very weird. Do you still feel today like you could start 
quote unquote speaking in tongues. I'm not asking you, I'm not asking you to do it. That's not what I'm asking. Yeah. Because I still feel weird about that when people are like, can you do that for me? I'm like, no, I, I feel, feel weird. like I don't, I don't attribute it to some divine something. I really enjoyed in your season one talking about speaking in tongues because it was like a meditative state. And, and I, I feel like there's some of that. I mean, especially after hours and hours of crying, um, you just sort of get into this like nonsense babbling. So I, I have to laugh though when you say, can you speak in tongues now? Because we play around just like joking with each other, my husband and our friends. But the way that we play around, quote unquote, speaking in tongues is not how I spoke in tongues when I thought I was for real, real speaking in tongues. Does that make sense? It doesn't sound the same. It sounds like what I heard other people do. Simi tamata, simi tamata is one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, shitty shitty atatai. Also, proven to be traumatic for many, but not all Pentecostal campers, but definitely Sharon and me, was the end times messaging. Come on. Hello. Young people. Your generation is the rapture generation, and it's a generation that's going to bring about the greatest revival since the day of Pentecost. And young people, it is the desire of everyone that works so diligently in this camp to prepare you for that. And that is to get the word in your heart. Write it on the tables of your heart. Sounds innocent enough to some people. But this end times messaging included endowing us, as Sharon's dad put it there, as the rapture generation. Meaning we were constantly being told that at any moment in our lifetime, Jesus was going to literally appear in the sky and take the Christians back to heaven with him. Oh, it's good to feel the presence of God. It's good to shout. Folks, we've got a word full of his promises right here. We've got a book full of promises. We've got a book full of guidelines. We've got a, a book full of history. We've got a book full of everything that God needs to lead God to direct your life from right now until he comes to get us. But it does us no good. And we better well as hell be ready when he comes to get us. Because if we aren't, if we weren't, we would be left behind. And this fear of being left behind can develop into something that I've heard recently described as rapture anxiety. Rapture anxiety. Yeah, I'll still kind of say something. Like when I'm kind of by myself or I'm missing somebody, like where'd where'd so-and-so go? Did I miss the rapture? Did I miss it? And I can personally attest that rapture anxiety can still be a struggle for people who don't even believe anymore. Because that's me. I still today find myself getting incredibly triggered by my own memories, especially camp memories, of being whipped into an absolute frenzy on a daily basis about not only being the rapture generation, not only that our worship and praise could usher in the great return of Jesus Christ, but this message that if we weren't ready, if we weren't right with God, we would be left behind to suffer terrifying trials and tribulations, literally hell on earth. And what's really difficult about this is that most often, this end times messaging was being delivered to us by church leaders who we know loved and cared for us. 
And this is especially true for Sharon, because it was her very own dad who often led the services. And I don't just mean back home in Shelbyville. Sharon's dad was also one of the main dudes in charge of the tabernacle. He was a camp director. And her dad, Ron Adams, is clearly beloved by his family, his congregation. And from the sounds of it, campers too. Yeah, I want to say we got a little present here for somebody that, is, um, that really worked hard for this church camp and uh, really put in some, a lot of effort into making it what it is. Um, he uh, kind of taught me a lot this week. He's very smart. He taught me he taught me the true definition of what we believe and what we really stand for. And, and I've been told all my life, but I just couldn't explain it like he explained it to me. And he's very smart, and uh, I like to like, ask for the running Adams to come up here. And... But I am surprised. I wasn't expecting anything like this. God bless you. Yes, it's been a beautiful week. Watching you young people grow during this week spiritually, showing your love one for another in these services. We, we learned what the definition of Christian is all about. Come on. There is never a time like today that you see people getting out and committing sin and wiping their mouth and saying there's nothing wrong with it. Young people, don't be a part of it. You don't have to be a part of it. You stay with Jesus no matter what. I don't care what you see your friends at school do. They may go to the big church uptown, but praise God, they may not have enough of the spirit there to withstand anything. But you've got to be that light that shines in their midst. Sometime in the 90s, the Emmanuel Church of Christ Youth Camp, the tabernacle, was sold. The whole property. Just one example of the great decline this once thriving assembly experienced after the events of 1987. Yeah, a lot of churches had gone away, had pulled out, and we just didn't have enough membership to justify having that piece of property. Now, I can't make that the quote-unquote official word, but the logic tracks for me, at least. So I hope you're picking up what I'm throwing down about Pentecostal camps. Like, sure, Sharon and I may have had bunk beds and campfires and camp crushes. But that was just the backdrop for this intense religious and spiritual education that we were receiving day and night while we were there. Camp was a training ground to build us up as spiritual warriors And this was an experience made even more intense by the fact that we were growing up during a time when evangelicals were being greatly influenced by the moral panic we now know as the satanic panic. Hi, I'm Scott Poole. I'm a professor of history at the College of Charleston. For more on this connection between 1980s and 90s Christian youth culture, and the satanic panic. I've invited back my season two guest, Professor Poole. He's written several highly acclaimed books, including Satan in America, 
the story of a nation's complicated relationship with the devil. So uh, I get to watch a lot of horror movies, uh, think a lot about uh, why we are all obsessed with uh, things that go bump in the night and, and talk about those things. So for any of my audience who might be new to it or just for a recap, give me your personal explanation of what the satanic panic was or maybe even is. The satanic panic as traditionally defined began in the late 1970s with a series of claims about a widespread conspiracy in American culture, although this did jump the pond and cross the border and influence Canada and the UK. And this story of a satanic conspiracy included at its and, and really at its center was the widely believed idea, very widely believed, outside of religious circles, outside even of people who believed in anything like a literal devil. The belief that missing children, in fact, the claim came to be about 50,000 missing children a year were being kidnapped and sacrificed in a ritualistic manner by satanic cults, all of which were assumed to be linked together. Now, none of this actually had any basis in physical evidence. Um, indeed, most of it had no basis in what we, we might consider material evidence or circumstantial evidence of any kind. Can you give me an idea of, in general, what kind of role American churches played in the satanic panic? So uh, American churches had uh, a, a role that, you, you know, you, you might describe it as, as kind of the incubator for the basic ideas of, of the panic that then spread more widely. A couple of examples of, of what I mean by that. There, there was a fascination with occult themes in broader American culture dating from 1968, Rosemary's Baby, 1973 and 4. So you could find those kinds of narratives out there. Paramount Pictures presents Mia Farrow in a William Castle production. Rosemary's Baby, suggested for mature audiences. And what happens, starting in the 70s, in individual churches, and in particular, white evangelical churches, most of them in the American South and Midwest, in these churches, they developed very antagonistic kinds of relationships to pop culture. But the interesting thing that I've come across in my work is that often they took bits and pieces of these popular narratives, these narratives that were much more well-known outside of churches, and sort of worked them into an emerging narrative of that, that evangelicals were quite used to of a world that was full of dangerous enemies of the faith. 
a great example of this is like how after movies like The Exorcist, that the Parker Brothers Ouija board game went from being a way to find out who your prom date was going to be to being seen as a tool of Satan, a way for him to trick teens into inviting legit demonic forces into their lives and souls. And that was an idea that becomes very important to evangelicals. The interesting thing is they get that idea from the exorcist. (laughs) Um, Indeed, increasingly, as they become fascinated with demon possession, which I think is a a very important part of the satanic panic as well, they, they tend to draw more and more on what's being seen in films so that there is uh, people who believe themselves to be demon-possessed. Whatever is going on with them psychologically, at least we can say that they were kind of performing the template that they had seen in The Exorcist and its many, many, many copies. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. (laughs) The world of darkness. I can totally connect, you know, how I was personally impacted by that whole Ouija board thing. I mean, I can remember in, I guess it was grade 11 or or 12, leaving the Christian school and going to the public school for the first time. So hanging out with non-Christian kids was a whole new world for me. And the very first sleepover that I went to was a whole bunch of girls and they brought out a Ouija board and I called my mom to come and pick me up and left the, <laughs> left <laughs> right. the sleepover. <laughs> right. Um, all, all the fun and friendship in, I missed out um, on. Yeah, because, uh, you know, not only in sermons, but in the kinds of religious literature that circulated in evangelical circles, the Ouija board really is portrayed as as a, Exactly the way that horror films were using it. I mean, it it was like a portal to hell. But there was a a, a darker side to it because there's a a new kind of religious celebrity that emerges in the late 70s and the early 80s. A, what's sometimes called youth evangelists or simply called themselves evangelists whose focus tended to be on teenagers and more specifically on the dangers that teenagers allegedly, and I do stress allegedly, faced from the occult and then in some ways as a supplement of that, uh, the supposed dangers of heavy metal music. I remember one of my schoolmates actually is something that's even after all these years, it still bothers me. One of my schoolmates was a really, really gifted artist and and also a, a really, really devoted metalhead. Uh, and he burned all of his his work because he had become convinced that, in fact, there were demonic influences in the music that he loved, uh, in the games that we played in the art that he made. I think particularly this relates, I get, I think to your experience, Tara, that, you know, if, if, if you're a person with uh, spiritual sensitivities, if you think deeply about these kinds of things, um, 
if you're 15 or 16 or 17, then um, obviously this is going to have a very, very powerful effect on you. And so one of the things that I actually worry about... as Professor Poole has pointed out to me, there were other victims of the satanic panic, like the people who over the years have been accused of being Satanists, innocent people who have been accused of ritually abusing children, people who went to prison for it without any evidence, people like the West Memphis Three. The West Memphis Three only being, you know, the most well-known of these. Three teenagers who, in 1994, despite any evidence connecting them to the crime, were convicted of murdering three eight-year-old boys after rumors spread that they did it as part of some satanic ritual. But I also think that beyond those pretty horrific cases, part of the long-lasting legacy of this is a large number of people who were really influenced to see the world whether they continue to put it in these terms or not, as a very simple struggle between good and evil. And then beyond that, the idea that evil is something very straightforward, very sinister, and and very easy to do something about. You don't celebrate Halloween and you're fine. Don't listen to heavy metal music and you're fine. You don't watch horror movies and you're fine. So in thinking about American culture and sort of thinking also about what's happened to, you know, what Generation Xers uh, like myself and, and kind of where they are politically, I think that some of the strange combination of rage and, and polarization and depression uh, that seems to be a part of our political landscape may owe something to the satanic panic. I was curious about Sharon's awareness of the satanic panic. She says she remembers hearing something about it in the 90s when it was actually happening, but really it connects to the messaging she was receiving surrounding secular music and about it being the devil's music. They talked about the Eagles um, Hotel California being about the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey's Church of Satan, because you can go in and out when you want to, but you can never leave. Like, all, it, it, it's, it's crazy. Like, you, you can't can't listen or watch or do anything. But when you think about it though, that's all about controlling the information. Because if you control information that people receive, no matter how that information is given to them, if it's musically, if it's through books, if it's through things that they're watching, plays they're going to, all of this information changes the way we think and becomes part of our critical thinking processes. So if you can control everything that a person is receiving, you can control how they think and control what they do. And that's really what it's all about. As you can hear, control 
and propaganda and censorship, especially when it comes to children and youth, is something that Sharon has grown up to be extremely passionate about, especially when it comes to books. Next on our list, members, we have uh, Sharon Edwards, the president of the Tennessee Library Association. In March of 2022, Sharon testified in front of the Tennessee House Criminal Justice Committee to speak out against Bill 1944. It attempts to keep obscene and pornographic materials out of school libraries. It doesn't matter that Tennessee already has a harmful to minors law. That does not have an exception for education, making this bill redundant. It doesn't matter that none of the books being challenged here are obscene. It doesn't matter that removing these books constitutes a First Amendment violation that will certainly trigger lawsuits in our schools. It doesn't matter that parents already have a legal right. The problem with Bill 1944 for Sharon is that the books that this committee had deemed obscene were basically anything that highlighted, one, how shitty white folks have been historically to people of color, and two, any materials that remotely normalize 2SLGBTQ plus lifestyles. It doesn't matter that this bill requires the removal of challenged items for a minimum of 30 days, but doesn't require the school board to review those items. So the 30 days could turn into a permanent book ban. And quite frankly, that ought to stick in the crawl of every local municipality leader because it's a huge government overreach. Here I am, y'all. I stand against House Bill 1944, and I am anti-obscenity in school libraries. So please hear me when I say that you can vote against this bill because it's unconstitutional and still oppose obscenity in school libraries because despite all the recent slander and the public shaming of librarians... FYI, the bill passed on the very first consideration. But here's why Sharon's plight with the House Criminal Justice Committee is important here, in case it's not obvious. It's because all the people who successfully censored these materials from Tennessee public school libraries, according to Sharon, they are all from the evangelical community. Maybe not full-blown Pentecostal, but evangelicals for sure. Evangelicals who are using Tennessee's school libraries as a holy battleground. But what's cool here, and a total twist, it's actually that Sharon's dad, an evangelical minister himself, he's the one that infused Sharon with what she describes as a very romantic view of the Constitution. Meaning that, despite his own personal beliefs, Pastor Ron Adams would never agree with any kind of government censorship or theocracy. But, That doesn't mean he didn't work hard, like other evangelical parents of the day, to protect his girls and other young people from what he believed to be the devil's wily temptations. Sharon remembers, for example, a strict no-MTV rule in her house. Turn it on. Leave it on. I want my MTV. You want your MTV. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. Turn it on. Leave it on. America, see the music you want to see. I want my MTV. All right. But in place of all that popular culture, we were bombarded instead with harmful Christian propaganda 
and fear-mongering. It, it was not so much fear. Like I didn't, I didn't really live in fear because we were so greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Like we had the power. We, we could cast them out. We like, I can walk wherever I want to walk and demons will move out of my way kind of thing. It's funny because like, that was the same sort of message that I was getting from the adults in my church. And yet the fear manifested in me so deeply. Like, for example, I lived in, and we've talked about this before, like I lived in a spirit of fear until I was well into my adult life because I had this sincere belief in the devil's desire to do this evil work in my life. And this idea that there were demons all around me plotting to destroy me at any point, it impacted me as a human being. I needed serious therapy in order to get through that. One more thing that I wanna bring up about growing up Pentecostal and camp that is sort of a lingering thought for me, it's that if so many of us were traumatized by this experience, when does this enter into a world where what happened to us, what still happens at Pentecostal camps today, at what point is this considered child abuse? You know, I've had that same thought. Um, For me, I don't know that I go so far as child abuse as definite brainwashing. But I guess brainwashing is child abuse. I don't know. I would say that definitely the altar service can be construed as child abuse. I mean, somebody laying hands on you and shaking you and screaming in your ear, that's not good. I had to get a ton of psychotherapy to get the healing I needed, especially before I was able to make a podcast about all this stuff, in the way that I have anyway. But not every kid or teen that grew up in the satanic panic or went to a Pentecostal church camp is going to put their hand up and say, I need therapy. Like Sharon, she has never felt the need for anything formal like that. I probably should have gotten therapy. (laughs) I probably should still seek it out. Um, But I I don't, I don't want to be one of those people that is very hair tossy and like, I don't need therapy. Sure, I'll take therapy. I just haven't done it. What I do have though is a great crew. My husband and I, we kind of deconstructed together and we have close friends of ours who uh, we all came out of church together. And we talk about it and we laugh about it. And then we have like for real conversations about it um, where we process it together. We, we like to get drunk and preach. Oh, I'll tell you back in the day, you could pray in schools, but they taking it out. Oh, you can't pray no more. Oh, they take God out of everything. But I know, you know, like, and they would sing a little bit and then you'd get the, the piano and they're like, um, someone would say something, they go, doom, 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 doom. Yeah, it's entertainment. Anybody can preach. So the satanic panic began in the 1970s and has arguably never really ended. But in the late 1980s, in 87, when Emmanuel Church of Christ Oneness Pentecostal was set on fire with a headless body inside, this mass anxiety was peaking. So... Is it possible then that the rumors about a satanic ritual being somehow involved had more to do with the satanic panic than 
any actual occult activity? If you've been paying attention, I think you know the answer is yes. That's what it's all about, coming together helping one another in need. Amen. Praise the Lord. God is good. God is good. On the next episode of Heaven Bent. Prosecutors have given notice that they will seek the death penalty against John David Terry, who is charged with killing and beheading a church handyman and then setting fire to his church. Brenda says David's behavior changed in 1984. Have you ever heard this kind of stuff before? No. It's 1988, and shocking new details emerge as the David Terry murder and arson case goes to trial. His mental health analysis was that he suffered from major depression, and his mood was always depressed. Of course, after I met him, he was always defending this crime. 